So this is the first week of our brand new sermon series, which we are calling Seated with Jesus. And this series is going to last for about 12 weeks, which is going to take us all the way up to Easter. Um, And we're going to be going through Jesus' most famous sermon, the one that we usually call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in Matthew's Gospel, and it takes up all of chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. So it's a fairly lengthy section of the Bible, and, and we're calling it Seated with Jesus because of the intro to the sermon that we find in the first verses of chapter 5. Here's what it says there. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This was uh, Jesus' normal posture for teaching instead of standing in front of a group like most people do now and like I'm doing uh, this morning, Jesus would go and he would sit, and everybody would sit around him and listen to him teach. And, uh, and, and so in this sermon series, we are going to be seated with Jesus, learning from him as he preaches an important sermon for those who want to follow him. And uh, this is toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He hasn't, uh, he, he's just, just in the first few months of his, uh, his time of preaching and teaching here. But it isn't his first time teaching. In fact, it says near the end of chapter 4 that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Um, but this is the first time that the Bible gives us a summary or kind of a uh, uh, an idea of what it was exactly that he was preaching and teaching about. So, so what was it that he was uh, uh, talking about as he was teaching in the synagogues? It was stuff like what we have right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is, in fact, the most extensive summary of Jesus' preaching that we have in the whole Bible. So exciting that we get to spend the next 12 weeks seated with Jesus and learning about what he taught. Now, we're not calling this series Seated with the Clearwater Church Pastors, right? Um, The point of what we're doing today and every time we teach at Clearwater Church is not for you to learn from me or from Mike or from the other uh, preachers. Um, The point is for you to learn from Jesus through the study of the Bible. And, uh, and, And the preachers are just here to help you to understand what the Bible is telling you. We're not here to give you our own wisdom and our own, um, our own things about God. We're here to give you what the Bible teaches. But that requires a greater amount of engagement on your part. That means that you need to be thinking about what the Bible says and how we are explaining it to you so that you can actually process and think about the, the real teaching of the Scripture and not just about what I'm saying. So you need to be looking at these sections of the Bible, thinking about them, listening to us, and that as we try to help you understand the Word. And there's some other things you can also do if you really want to uh, benefit from this sermon series, especially. We have some of these uh, study guide books, Sermon on the Mount. Um, They are kind of question and answer type books that you use to go through um, the Sermon on the Mount. We've got some of them back here at the back table. Um, we have a limited number. If we run out, you can buy these on Amazon for less than 10 bucks. Um, but, uh, but they're the back there, and we encourage those who are um, 
who, who, who thrive in this kind of a study to take these home and throughout the week be doing your, your study. It's also 12 weeks just like our series is. It's not an exact match of exactly which passages each week they're going to go through, but it's close enough. So um, there's also the other thing that you can do besides do these study guide books on your own is that um, we have journey groups that are going to be uh, following along with the sermon series. In fact, some of them are going to use that study guide book and, uh, and study the book and listen to the sermons and discuss the, the uh, passages from the Scripture. And um, I feel like that is really the best way for you to maximize your, your value of being at church for these 12 weeks is to also be in a group that's going to be discussing these things. So today is a special day for journey groups because we're, we're kind of doing our big launch of new uh, groups in the new journey group season. It's a new year, and so we have the big sign up back there, and we've got a table with all kinds of information about groups. There's a brand new journey group catalog, so people are going to come at the end of the service and talk a little bit more about that, but I really encourage you, if you're not already in a journey group, um, take a look at the new journey group catalog. Find one that fits your schedule. They meet on different days of the week and different times and stuff. Find one that fits your schedule, that fits your interests, and get yourself into a group. So, Jesus, in our, in our setting here, is sitting up on a mountainside with a large group of his disciples gathered around him, sitting to hear him. And it's a little bit like what we have in our picture here, um, but it's, it's really not too much like our picture here. This picture is very Alaskan. In fact, before the service, we were talking about who we thought that might be sitting there with their backs to us, and you can make your own guesses and discuss among yourselves who that is. Um, but... But this looks like it could have been taken right up here in the Chugach, right? Um, but the mountains that uh, the Bible talks about when it's talking about the mountains of Israel don't look exactly like the Chugach. I actually do have a photograph of um, the mountain that uh, is probably the one that, uh, that Jesus gave this sermon on. This is it in northern Israel in the Galilee region. That's the Sea of Galilee at the bottom. There, and that is the top of the mountain where that church is built there. Um, there's churches built on every site where anything is mentioned in the Bible. There's a church built there in Israel. If you ever go there, you'll see them all over the place. But this is the Mount of Beatitudes, they call it. And, um, and you can see it's not quite a, uh, you know, a six-hour hike uh, into, the, into the mountains to get to the top of this thing. But Jesus and, and the crowd had walked up somewhere onto the side of the mountain, and Jesus sat down on the slopes, and all these people gathered around him, um, that people had gathered from all over uh, Galilee. This is uh, pretty near the city of Capernaum. Um, we're not totally sure that this is the mountain because the Bible doesn't really give us much geographical specifics here. But if it wasn't this one, it was one very much like this in the same area. So this is what we are, we're picturing here, people sitting with a great view of the Sea of Galilee and listening to Jesus teach. And so... Um, he gives them this sermon. And now, this sermon was almost certainly quite a lot longer than what we have written in the book of Matthew. If you were to just read straight through this, it would only be about 10 or 15 minutes long. And I think Jesus preached longer. He probably preached about 30 minutes because that's the perfect amount of time for preaching, which is what we do here. Um, no, he might have read even longer than that. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, this is a summary of some of the key things that Jesus had to say that day. Matthew, who was the one who wrote this, was almost certainly there on that day. 
right? It's, it's not until the next chapter after the sermon that uh, the, the Bible records the call of Matthew when Jesus goes and, and says, come and follow me, and Matthew gets up and leaves his, his uh, job and comes and follows Jesus. But clearly, he had already heard Jesus teach and preach and had had some contact with Jesus. That's why he was willing to jump up and leave his job to go and follow. And almost certainly, he was there on this particular day. Um, and then, some years later, uh, when Matthew went to write this down, the Holy Spirit carried him along in order to write a perfectly accurate and reliable um, record of what Jesus had to say. It's not a word-for-word full sermon, but it, everything that he says that Jesus said, or these are things that Jesus really said. And now here we are, um, many years later, and we are able to also learn from Jesus by sitting with Him and learning from Him. So, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into the text. We're going to start with, uh, I'm just going to read through this, uh, this section, this first section of text here. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those, or sorry, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this series of sayings that starts off the sermon is, is rightfully a famous uh, section. Um, they have all have this same form, starting out with, blessed are thee, and then describing a group of people that Jesus considers to be blessed. And we know these sayings as the Beatitudes, which uh, that word Beatitudes comes from the Latin translation of that introductory phrase, which is beatus or something like that. I don't know, no Latin, but... Um, and, uh, and naming these sayings after that word there that begins each one is exactly the right way to do it, because understanding that word is key to understanding what Jesus is trying to say here. Now, um, for almost 10 years, I was a Bible college professor in South Africa, and one of the things that I taught was biblical Greek. Um, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and uh, many pastors in their training, they learned to read uh, Greek, uh, in order, so that they can check the original languages instead of having to rely on translations um, to, uh, to understand the Bible. But, um, but what I'm going to do now is something that I always used to tell my students not to do. I always told them, do not mention any Greek word in the delivery of a sermon. I said, Greek is for sermon preparation and study, not for sermon delivery. Um, but I did tell them there are sometimes there's exceptions. If you're going to take the time to explain the word and, you, and it's really an important word and there's key uh, things about it, then you can take some time to, uh, uh, on, the, on a rare occasion to talk about it. And this is one of those rare occasions. The word that was used here in the original Greek language is makarios. Jesus said, makarios are the meek, makarios are the poor in spirit. That's the word that he used. And... and um, Makarios doesn't mean exactly the same thing as our English word blessed or any other English word. And so, um, 
So it takes a bit of explaining for us to understand just what Jesus meant here. So the first thing I want to say is, is, is that um, it does not mean someone who has received a blessing from God. Like, this is how you can tell who's been blessed by God. If they have these characteristics, then God has blessed them, and that's why they're like that. That's not what it's saying. Um, you might think from that English word that Jesus is giving us a list of requirements that we must meet, and if we do, God will bless us. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us what people, what kind of people we need to be in order to be blessed by God. That's just not what this word makarios means. Uh, a person who's, who is makarios is someone who has, they're really thriving and flourishing. A person who is makarios is someone who is in an enviable position in life, right? Is someone who is worthy of, uh, of being congratulated and admired, it's somebody who, uh, they're, they're experiencing life as it should be. It's the people that were like, I wish I was that guy. That's, that's what a, a Makarios person is. It's the person who's really doing it right, doing well, thriving, flourishing. So what kind of people do we naturally think of in this way? What kind of people do we look up to and say, man, I wish I was that guy? Um, if we were to put together our own list of characteristics of blessed people, what would it look like? Now, for a moment, forget that you're in church, and don't give the churchy answers, but honestly, think about it. Who do you think of as, I wish I was like them? Would your list include rich people, like Bill Gates or Elon Musk? Or do you wish that you were beautiful, like Zoe Saldana or Ella Embry? <laughs> or what about sports heroes? Maybe you wish you were Venus Williams or Christian McCaffrey. Or do you look up to the kind of person who has widespread honor and respect, like Martin Luther King Jr. or Jimmy Carter? There's other traits and other specific people that you might use as examples, but but I think that those are the kinds of people that most of us would think of as blessed. These are the characteristics that we wish we had. We wish we had wealth and fame and talent and beauty and, uh, and respect. And these are the people that we think are worthy of praise and imitation. These are the kind of people we want to be like. But Jesus has a very different list of characteristics that he considers to be the people who are doing well at life. And his list is pretty surprising. Now, I'm not really saying anything here about those people that we just saw and, you know, the, those examples and saying, those are not the people. Um, no, I'm just using those as illustrations of the kind of thinking and how different Jesus' thinking is from our own thinking. And by looking a little bit at what we naturally are drawn to, we can see what a different take Jesus has on all these things. Jesus' list is a strange one, and highlighting these more commonly admired traits will help us see the change in thinking that Jesus is asking us to make. So let's look at a couple of general observations about this list as a whole before we look at each one. First of all, notice that they are mostly about character rather than about behavior. God is more concerned with who you are than with what you do. 
Now, you can't really make a hard division there because who you are is going to influence what you do and vice versa. They're, they're, they're connected. But still, this list describes character qualities rather than a list of do's and don'ts. And, and, and that's important because sometimes we uh, tend to think about being a Christian as do's and don'ts. Being a good Christian means doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. But that's not God's main concern. God's main concern of, of, of who, who are the blessed people are people that have character traits rather than simply behaviors. He's more concerned about character than what people are doing. Now, a second point is that these beatitudes are not like the spiritual gifts, right? So, the Bible teaches that we all, uh, that Christians have been given spiritual gifts and, uh, and they're all given out to the people of the church so that all together we can um, have all the things we need in order to thrive as a church. But the Bible is very clear that nobody has all the gifts, and God did it that way specifically so that we can be dependent on one another, and nobody can be too independent. We need one another to really uh, function properly as, uh, as a church. But this is not like that. All of these are for all of us. We can't say, well, yeah, I'm really good at being merciful and hungering after righteousness, but, you know, meekness and peacemaking, those are not my thing, and so I'm just going to concentrate on my thing, let somebody else do that. That's not how this works. Each one of these is for each one of you. Now, my last general point is that none of these comes naturally to us. They're all counter to our normal human dispositions. That means if, if you have a personality that just goes against one of these, or the other, that's not an excuse. You may not say, God may be like this, so I, don't, I can't do that one. That's not for me. These don't come effortlessly to anyone. In fact, these beatitudes are really fruits of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives just as much as the fruits that are listed in Galatians. It's God produces these things in us. So now let's, let's, let's take a quick look at each one of these uh, things on the list. Starting with, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, obviously, the phrase poor in spirit, it's not simply a reference to being financially poor. Um, there are other places in the Bible where Jesus does say very positive things about people who are simply financially poor. Um, and in another sermon where Jesus gives a very similar list of, of beatitudes like this one, he does simply say, blessed are the poor. But that's not what he's talking about here. Um, there's a passage from Isaiah where we see the same idea described that helps us to better understand what it means to be poor in spirit. In Isaiah 66, it says, uh, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So that same idea of being poor in spirit is described here as, uh, as humble and contrite in spirit. So the person who's poor in spirit is the one who recognizes their spiritual need. They're humble and they can see that they don't measure up the way that they should. Um, the, the poor in spirit know that without God, they have no goodness of their own, 
to earn their way into the kingdom of heaven. The great example of this attitude is from Jesus, uh, one of his parables. He tells about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go into the uh, temple to pray. And the tax collector, um, he cries out to God. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that he goes home that day justified before God, even though, as he says, he's a sinner. The Bible also contains a stunning counterexample of the opposite attitude of uh, the poor in spirit. It's in uh, one of the letters to the churches in uh, the book of Revelation. It's part of the letter to the church at Laodicea, and it says this, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So, how do you do on this beatitude? Do you realize your poverty of spirit? Are you trusting wholly on God's mercy to save you? Or do you still think that you have some goodness and some righteousness to add to the equation of salvation? Are you crying out to God for mercy? Or are you saying, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing? Jesus said, it's the poor in spirit who will inhabit the kingdom of God. The next one here, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, Jesus is not just talking about any mourning here, but he's talking about mourning over one's own sins. And one of the best ways to acquire this beatitude is to come to see the holiness of God. When we catch a glimpse of God's holiness, we will mourn our own sinfulness. And uh, the great example of that in the Scriptures is, the, is from the book of Isaiah. Um, I'm just going to read the story of what happened to Isaiah here from Isaiah chapter 6. It says, "...in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple." Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That's quite a scene. Isaiah's response, verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. See, in this passage, Isaiah experiences both the, uh, the mourning for his sin, and he receives what Jesus promised. He receives the comfort also. Those who mourn will be comforted. 
The next uh, beatitude here, maybe the most famous one, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, uh, meek is not a word that we use very often these days. In fact, some translations avoid using it in the New English versions because it's just not an English word that you hear much of. So it takes a little bit of uh, work to understand what we're really talking about here. Um, the, 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 the word that the Bible uses almost as a synonym and where some places use it instead of meek as a translation is humble. The meek do not grow angry when their pride is wounded. They do not react with hot-tempered emotion when they are challenged or accused. The meek think of others rather than their own desires. And our great example of, uh, of, of, of biblical meekness is Moses. Um, in the book of Numbers, it tells us, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Um, and then in this chapter, uh, after it tells us that how meek Moses was, it, it illustrates it. There's a story where Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, decide to challenge Moses' leadership. And they say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't He also spoken through us? And when he was challenged, Moses did not get angry. He did not defend himself. He just stayed quiet. And he left it to God. And God did get angry and uh, silence the, the, the challenge and reestablished Moses as his chosen leader. But to illustrate that meekness does not mean just being non-confrontational and being afraid of, uh, of, of conflict, um, there's another story from Moses in Exodus 32. Now, in Exodus 32... This is the, when the, they were at Mount Sinai, Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and the people were waiting, and they decided to build an idol. They built a golden calf, and they were worshiping it and having a big party when Moses came down off the mountain. And it says in Exodus 32, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And then it actually goes on and gets more extreme from there. So what was the difference between the two situations? Why did Moses do nothing when Aaron and Miriam challenged him in Numbers 12, but react with drastic measures and anger in Exodus 32? Well, I believe that the answer is in the nature of the challenges that were being posed in each passage. In the first story, it's Moses' own leadership and his own position and his own pride that are being challenged. And in the second story... It's God who's being insulted. Moses was the leader of his people, and as God's representative, he acted to defend God's honor. You see, a meek person still has a backbone and will still take a stand when it is right to do so, but a meek person is ready to be criticized and even insulted without reacting with undue emotional outbursts. 
and without seeking vengeance for the offense. Next beatitude in Jesus' list, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. First thing we need to to do here is understand what is he even talking about that they're hungering and thirsting after? What is righteousness? Well, righteousness in this uh, this context, um, it it can have different meanings in different parts of the Bible, but here the meaning is a life that is lived in conformity to God's will. That's righteousness. Righteousness is a life that's lived in conformity to God's will. And that includes all of life. It's not limited to a simple list of do's and don'ts. Righteousness takes into, uh, into its scope all of your life. To be righteous is to have every element of your life just as God would have it, to be completely in conformity with God's will. Now, aren't you kind of glad that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are righteous? Because that would be a pretty impossible standard for us to to reach. That might be what we'd expect him to say, but instead he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That I can do, right? Um, Even if you're very far from being righteous, and you are, and even if because of your poverty of spirit you realize that it's going to be a long road for you to ever get close to being righteous, you don't need to actually be righteous in order to be considered blessed by Jesus. All you need to do is, is hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? Um, now, hunger and thirst, that's not just any casual desire, right? When you're hungry and you're thirsty, a person who's really hungry and thirsty, they're going to go to extreme measures to try to, to satisfy those desires, you're gonna, if you're really thirsty, you're going to do whatever it takes to get yourself a drink. Jesus promises that if you're truly hungry and thirsty for a life in conformity with God's will, that God will fill that hunger. He will help us to become more righteous. The next characteristic that Jesus praises is mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? Well, it means to be compassionate, gentle, and kind to others, especially those who are undeserving, or even those who actually deserve to be treated harshly. So must we give to others what they deserve? Well, does God give us what we deserve? So what do I mean by those who deserve to be treated badly? Well, sometimes people behave in such a way toward us that we have a right to respond. But the person who is characterized as merciful will not give back insult for insult or hurt for hurt. They choose to show love to the one who has done them wrong. And it is the one who recognizes in himself his own need for mercy and has experienced the mercy of God who will be merciful to others. And in turn, that person is promised by Jesus that she will experience more of God's mercy. 
And I think we'll also find that it's true that uh, we'll be shown more mercy by other people too when we are people who show mercy. Next one here, it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So the heart, of course, is the inner person rather than the outward visible person. The heart has to do with the motives and feelings rather than appearances and the way you're presenting yourself to others and the the outward uh, look of yourself. So do you remember... um, when God was uh, directing Samuel to choose David to be the new king of Israel, he sent him, he didn't tell him exactly who to choose. He, he said, go to this family and, uh, and meet all the young men in this family, and one of them is going to be the king. And uh, so Samuel is there, and he's, he's interviewing each of the, the brothers. And when Samuel saw David's brother Eliab, he thought, surely this guy, this is the one. He's the next king. And then the Bible says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right? So it isn't our outward appearance or even our outward behavior that is of primary concern to God. God wants to see a pure heart. Now, to be pure in heart is, is a bit more than, than just to be morally pure, right, and to avoid sinful behavior. To be pure is to be untainted. It's to be all one thing. So if we think about, like, pure water, pure water is nothing but water. There's no gunk and mud and, and stuff in it. It's pure uh, water, And a pure heart is a heart that is focused on one thing, a heart that seeks after one thing rather than going in different directions. A verse that, another verse that talks about this idea is from the Psalm, Psalm 24, where it says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So part of the explanation of what a man of a pure heart is is that he does not lift up his soul to an idol. Right? So that is, he is not divided in his loyalty between God and another master. Um, Now, in the time that that psalm was written, the, the, the idols that many people were tempted to worship were Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech. Um, Personally, I don't feel very much temptation to worship Molech. I don't know if any of you have been feeling that temptation lately to worship Molech. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to us. Um, There is another master that I am tempted to worship alongside God, someone else that I'm tempted to serve. How many of you think you know who I'm going to say or what? (laughs) Well, this comes from passage we're going to look at in a moment. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount. We'll cover it in a couple of weeks here. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Now, in today's world, for most of us, we're not tempted to worship Molech. We're tempted to serve money. I know that's a challenge for me. You know, advertisers are pretty good at creating a desire in my heart for all of the things that money can buy. You know, I want a better car, I want designer clothes, I want a cooler phone, I want nicer furniture, I want to go on lavish holidays and exotic locations, I want all this kind of stuff that money can buy. Don't you? So is your heart pure? Have you lifted up your soul to the idol of money? Now, that's a, that's a pretty different question than asking whether you actually have money. Um, somebody with very little money can lust after that idol just as much as somebody who has money. What I'm asking is whether you're trying to serve two masters. But the Bible promises... Um, that Jesus, uh, Jesus says, those who are fully devoted to God and have a pure heart to God, they will see God. Now, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of that will be in the next life when we will see God face to face. But even now, if you are devoted to God, you will see His hand at work in your life. And that is a great promise. Next beatitude here is a pretty straightforward one. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. A peacemaker is somebody who, if they're in a meeting and the tensions are rising, they don't take sides and, uh, and contribute to the conflict. They, they rather, uh, a peacemaker calms everyone down and finds a way to bring resolution to the situation, which, of course, is easier said than done, Right? But I just want to look at a couple of verses uh, from the Bible to give us advice on how to be a peacemaker. The first one is from the book of James, chapter 1, where it says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Then in another place in the Proverbs, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. Still easier said than done. But I told you all these beatitudes are difficult and they're all contrary to our normal human desires. This one too. So pray that the Holy Spirit will help you to be a peacemaker. And when he grants that prayer, you will be regarded as a son or a daughter of God. Final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because you lack tact in speaking about God. And it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because you have a condemning attitude toward others. And it doesn't say, uh, persecuted because you're a hypocrite who talks about righteousness but doesn't live like it. All of those things are sadly common enough among Christians and will probably result in people not liking you and, and persecuting you. But that's not the person that Jesus is pronouncing as blessed here. Remember how we defined righteousness uh, a little while back? 
a life in conformity to the will of God. And when you live your life in conformity to the will of God, you will be significantly different from people around you. And a lot of times, people don't like people who are different. Jesus told us in in the Gospel of John, this was toward the end of His ministry, talking to His disciples, He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So when you find that you are being mistreated because of your righteous lifestyle, be encouraged. It's those who live in such a righteous way that it brings opposition. Those are the people who are promised the kingdom of heaven. And notice that that's the same promise that's given to those who, in the first beatitude there, both of those end with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those identical promises at the beginning of the list and the end of the list show that these all fit together. This is not just a list of separate things, with varied, but it's, it's, it's varied descriptions of the person with godly character who Jesus considers to be among the most fortunate people in the world. So that's Jesus' list of blessed characteristics. These are the kinds of things that we should be striving to be like. Hunger and thirst after these things. Open your life to the work of the Holy Spirit, and God will give them to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have revealed your will to us in this passage and many others, and I pray that you would help us to to be more like this, to be the kind of people that Jesus describes, people who are, are thriving and flourishing in their relationship with you and in their life in this world. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.